0: All right, is it just me or is it getting kind of warm in here? I don't know if we want to turn that down, Bill. All righty, so um, we're nearing the end of the book of Genesis, uh, looking at the life of Jacob and Joseph, these last um, chapters 37 to 50, Um, and we're going to look at chapter 49 this morning. Okay, so Jacob has been reunited with his son Joseph, whom he thought was dead. Um, He's gotten 17 years with his son and the rest of his family in Egypt, in Goshen, uh, provided for because of Joseph and how God used him to preserve that area from an intense famine that lasted seven years. So interestingly, there isn't a word about those 17 years of life in Goshen. But now there's going to be a lot of ink spilled About the end of Jacob's life and his blessing on his sons. So there's some spirit inspired selectivity as far as what is most important um, at the end of his life. So um, all of this is here on purpose. All right, so last week Tyler did a great job walking us through chapter 48 as Jacob blessed Joseph's sons, um, Manasseh and Ephraim. And this week we'll walk through chapter 49. As Jacob blesses his own 12 sons. Okay, so he blesses his sons before his death. Um, He's moving from oldest to youngest with one exception. Um, He reverses Zebulun and Issachar. Who knows why? Um, But it quickly becomes obvious that the spotlight is on two of his sons, Judah and Joseph. Okay, and we're going to give the majority of our focus as well to those two. Um, Blessings like this in the ancient Near East were viewed as much more than just mere wishes. They were predictions of destiny that came with life-changing power. So especially under Yahweh, the sovereign God who holds the future, these words by the patriarch, um, the patriarch of the covenant, are prophetic in their nature. Okay, So we're going to read through Genesis 49. I'll make a few comments as we go along particularly on some of the suns that don't get a lot of of ink, and then um, we'll draw six points um, that are found in the outline. All right, so let's dive in and start in Genesis 49.1. So page number in your Bible. Somebody have it, call it out here. What is it, 42? If you need a Bible, it's in the pew rack in front of you, and it's on page 42. Genesis 49, then Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. It could also be translated in the latter days. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength. Preeminent or excelling in dignity and preeminent in power. So there's these high hopes, but sadly they came crashing down. Unstable as water. So unstable like wildness, weakness. It could refer to water that boils or the wildness of floodwaters that break out. The point is he's not self-controlled, but he was a slave of passions that were out of control. So unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So this refers back to chapter 35, verse 22, where Reuben, Jacob's firstborn son, actually slept with his father's wife, Bilhah. Okay, Bilhah was the servant of Rachel. Rachel couldn't have any kids yet, and so she gave Bilhah to Jacob so that she would bear children on her behalf. And this grossly immoral deed, by doing that, he forfeit his right to the blessing of the firstborn. Okay, so he had been preeminent, but he will be no longer. And in his place, Judah and Joseph will fill that place of blessing, as we'll see. Verse 5 Simeon and Levi are brothers, weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. So this most likely refers back to that violent response to the rape of their sister Dinah in chapter 34. So they were right to be angry and to call that wicked rapist to account, but they went way beyond justice. They killed all the men in the city. And then we see that their kind of spiteful, senseless brutality is illustrated by going even farther than that and their hamstringing oxen, which is, you know, cutting the tendons or the muscles of the back of the, the legs on those oxen, which renders them useless. So obviously the oxen didn't do anything to deserve this. They were just kind of in this mad rage and um, killed all the men and hamstrung the oxen. So Jacob says, Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So here's a curse. He's dividing and scattering them so that they won't be too strong, so that they won't dominate their brothers in their fierceness and cruelty, so their strength is going to be scattered and diluted, and they'll lose the ability to dominate. Verse 8. Judah, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Sounds like Joseph. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until... Tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. So, this is a picture of just superabundant prosperity, um, and and peace and blessing. Um, Yeah, just really strong picture. We'll look at that some more in a few minutes. Verse 13, Zebulun. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds, probably better saddlebags. You can see it down in the footnote. Um, He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. So interestingly, the point seems to be that Issachar is is going to be willing to trade freedom for material blessing. He's going to be willing to become a slave in order to obtain comfort and abundance. Verse 16, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. And then there's this interesting prayer thrown in in the middle of the blessings on the sons. Verse 18, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. We'll come back to that. Verse 19, Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a dough let loose that bears beautiful fawns. <clears throat> and then here, again, focuses on Judah and Joseph. And you can see how much space is given to Joseph here. We see present, past, and future um, statements here. Note the the tenses of the verbs. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, probably also by the name of the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Won't get into that, but um, anyway. All right, future. By the, by the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. And so Joseph is praying all this rich blessing down on Joseph's head, even blessing that would exceed the blessing on Abraham and Isaac. And then Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, so he'll become an aggressive warrior in the morning, devouring the prey, and at evening, dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. You can see that blessing is a significant theme here. And then, here's what happens before he dies. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife, there they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. All right. So, there's so an outline in the bulletin. Um, first point, blessings and anti-blessings. Obviously, he's blessing his sons. You hear that word over and over again here. Um, but some of these kind of seem like curses, don't they? Um, like, what's going on here? He's blessing some, and then others, the word is, is not good. It's sobering. It's more like a curse. He's actually speaking to his sons, to these tribes, in accord with the character of his sons. Okay, So the future is going to be affected by their past and present character. Listen to Alan Ross here. It's a fundamental principle in God's economy that the actions of individuals will affect the lives of their descendants. The activities and nature of the parents will affect the destinies of the descendants. It was true for Adam and Eve and it was true for the sons of Jacob. So that's a sobering reality, isn't it? Did we get the quote up there or no? Okay, it it was up there. Great. Thank you. So, in other words, there are real consequences to our sin. It never affects only you. So, this is a warning, right? I mean, our sin will affect future generations, but also our faithfulness can bless future generations, like Joseph or even Judah, which is interesting because he was a mixed bag, wasn't he? So thankfully, the passage speaks to the fact that the sins of the fathers doesn't mean a tribe is doomed. Okay, just notice this. Judah obviously went from ugly unrighteousness back in Genesis 38. You can go back and look at that later if you're not familiar with it to being willing to sacrifice his freedom for the sake of his younger brother, Benjamin. So he went from this ugly selfishness and fear and, you know, neglect of his daughter-in-law to being willing to sacrifice his own future and freedom for the sake of his younger brother, Benjamin. And he is being blessed with incredible... um, Blessings here in chapter 49. Levi is cursed here, right? Cursed be their anger. But who became these temple servants? The Levites. So they became priestly guardians of the sacred space of the dwelling place of God. So Levi's ferocity was redeemed for holy and righteous purposes later on. Okay? So yes, our sins will impact future generations. That's a sober warning. We ought to heed it. But also we can be encouraged that God can redeem ugly pasts and make new futures from them. Okay? So for us, the sins of our fathers and mothers— Doesn't have to get the last word with us. And the same thing for us with our future generations. So 1 Peter 1 18 to 19 um, is a sweet promise, sweet truth. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Any of you have some feudal ways that you were raised in? That was like a heavy burden. You've, you're afraid that you might follow in that same pattern. Well, how many of you were rescued out of that and freed from it? You don't have to be a slave of those feudal ways. You were ransomed, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That is really good. News. God can take any kind of family mess and turn it around. And it can start anew with an entirely new trajectory. So, but this idea of corporate solidarity is all over the place in the Bible. Adam and Eve, we are all born spiritually dead and separated from God because of the sins of our first parents. And the sins of Jacob's sons had impact on future generations, right? So the curse, you know, the sins of the fathers can be visited on future generations, but also the faithfulness of fathers and mothers, fathers or mothers, can be also a blessing. So um, the big picture, like huge good news about corporate solidarity is even though we were in Adam, we can be in Christ. So all of the Death and brokenness that comes that's ours because of Adam being our father. We can have all that is Christ's when we are in Him. I love this song by the Grey Havens called This My Soul. Listen to some of these words. I don't know if we'll have the words on the screen or not, but listen to these words. They paint this picture so beautifully. Um, so speaking of creation at first in the song, and then it says, Then man from the dust came reflecting all goodness and beauty and life, but he lowered his gaze as he listened to the face of low desires, the serpent. This, my soul, you were born, you were born into. What this man, Adam, has done, it all extends to you. Let the words shake on down along your spine and ring out true that you might find new life. The voice came and swords blocked the garden. None could return with their lives. A curse there was placed upon every man to face for all of time. No wisdom of man or a billion could deliver new life out of death. But the voice with the curse spoke a promise that the word would take on flesh. Then the perfect son of man took the place the voice had planned since the garden and before. He took the swords and cursed the grave. There's nothing more to separate us from the promise, the words of a living hope. And this, my soul, you were born into. What this man has done, it all extends to you. All the victory, all the blessing that Jesus won as the second Adam extends to us because we're in him. Let those words shake on down along your spine and ring out true that you might find life. Okay? So we see this corporate solidarity, the actions of the fathers visited on the sons, but thankfully that doesn't have to get the last word. It didn't for Judah or for Levi, and it certainly doesn't have to for us because of the redemption that can be ours in Christ. Um, We can be redeemed from those futile ways, and everything that is Christ becomes ours when we trust him and he is our Savior. Um, We are in him rather than in Adam. So also, while we're talking about blessings and anti-blessings, um, what do we make of this whole thing with these negative statements? So at the end of Genesis 49, it says in verse 28, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. And you can imagine Simeon and Levi going, wait a second, time out. You just said cursed. So how does that fit? Is it a blessing or a curse? Well, it's actually fairly simple. These anti-blessings or curses where Jacob prevents Reuben from ruling and Simeon and Levi from gaining too much strength is ultimately in the best interest of the people of God. Protecting the people from his unruly, passionate rule or the violence and injustice of Simeon and Levi. So in the end, the anti-blessings are actually blessings. So I said um, the focus of blessing is on Judah and Joseph. We're going to come back to Judah in a few minutes, but let's just look at Joseph and note a couple things here. So um, look down at uh, verse 22. So it says, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. So there's some, some sweet irony here. He is the firstborn son of the barren one. The barren one bears a son and he becomes the most fruitful one. Okay, that's what God can do, right? And how was that fruitfulness produced? Well, I don't know if how many of you were here when we highlighted this book, Don't Follow Your Heart by John Bloom. It was a couple years ago. It is such a good book. If you didn't read it, go get it. Um, you will not be disappointed. But there's a chapter in here called God Loves Good Wine. Okay? So he had read this article, and he quotes it, and then he makes a point. And I'll read it here. Ready? Great wines come from low-yielding vineyards. This is quoted from some Washington Post article, and then he makes a comment on it. Great wines come from low-yielding vineyards planted in marginal climates on the poorest soils. Though hard on the vines, these tough conditions are good for the wine, because the vines that are stressed must work harder to produce fruit, which leads to fewer but more concentrated and flavorful grapes. By contrast, the vines used for bulk wines have it easy. They are planted in the fertile soils in ideal climates of regions such as California's Central Valley. Such regions are great for producing tons of grapes to fill up the bulk fermentation tanks, but not at all great for producing the complex, intense flavors needed to make great wine because the vines are not stressed and the yields are way too high. So he says this, stressed vines produce good wines. This phenomenon of nature is also a parable for how God produces rich, complex, intense faith in his children. It's simply that tough conditions produce the best faith. So whose faith was the strongest of the 12 sons? Clearly, far and away, Joseph. So God produced this good wine faith in some really tough soil from being abused and betrayed by his brothers and unjustly treated in Egypt but oh how sweet or complex or whatever you want to say um, rich was the yield in Joseph's life he is a fruitful bough a fruitful bough by a spring his branches run over the wall so deep depth of character bowed by a spring, branches running over the wall, breadth of influence. The archers attacked him, harassed him, but he remained unmoved because his hands, his arms were strengthened by the mighty one of Jacob. Um, That was his shepherd, that was his rock, and that God will help him and his sons in the future, his offspring in the future, and will bless them with incredibly rich blessings here. Okay? So that's a good word for us as well. You may be feeling like you were planted in some pretty hard ground. But by God's grace, God can produce some good wine faith in you. And he intends to do that. So the blessings here and even the anti-blessings and even the curses or anti-blessings you could say in Joseph's life, we're turned to blessing by the sovereign and gracious hand of God. Okay, second point. The Lord must deliver. Did you catch that little prayer? It's just kind of dropped in there in the middle of this whole thing in verse 18. It's really short. I wait for your salvation, O Yahweh, O Lord. So, small little verse, but I think it packs a pretty big punch. Why is it there? It's... it's Roughly at the center, kind of a fitting centerpiece for this whole chapter, Jacob has been speaking of the character and the future of his sons. And sadly, (laughs) there's a lot of sin, there's a lot of instability, there's a lot of violence. There's plenty of dangerous tendencies within his sons. There are plenty of dangers and threats without that are going to be pressing in on his sons. So the future of his sons, the character of his sons, causes him to just call out to God. As the ESV study Bible says, without divine deliverance, they will not survive. But doesn't this also mark a change in Jacob? Who was he? He was the conniving deceiver who regularly took matters into his own hands to gain a blessing. Now he wants to bless his sons, and he's crying out to the Lord to do it because he knows that only the Lord can do it. Alan Ross writes this, Jacob retained that unquenchable desire for the blessing of God. He had learned in his life the true source of blessings and he fought with God and man to be privileged to hand that blessing on to his sons. That wrestling match was a turning point. So, I imagine every parent here can resonate with this, or if you're in any kind of ministry, caring for people, you can relate. I mean, sometimes maybe parents can think early on that, you know, if you train them well enough, so generously and faithfully the seed of the gospel, then, you know, boop, out will pop this perfectly godly child. Or, you know, if I just avoid the errors of my parents, you know, we're going to shepherd their hearts. Um, You know, we're going to do it all right. We're going to find the secret formula, and our kids are going to turn out just as we desire, and I'm all for shepherding our child's hearts. Child's hearts, not, not knocking that at all. But the point is, there is no formula, and we can't do it. We can't change the hearts of our kids. We certainly must be faithful, and what we do as parents matters, Consider the last point about the effects of our sins on future generations. But in the end, the Lord must deliver. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. So we pray. And many of you are still praying and waiting. And I say to you, you are not alone. You are a member of a vast fellowship of love-filled heartbroken parents. And I just want to say, don't give up. The God of Jacob who took a take matters into your own hands trickster and made him into a prayerful patriarch is the one to whom you pray. And he can do that in our situations as well. The Lord must deliver. The Lord can deliver. Let's cry out to him. So point number three, look down at verses 29 to 33. um, The death of Jacob here. It's clear that he is dying in faith. He displays his faith once again by commanding that his burial place be in the promised land, not in Egypt. So here is this faithful pilgrim, and we can follow in his footsteps. So his faith in the promise is even stronger than his love for Rachel. You see that? He's going to be buried with Leah, which was not his favorite wife. Okay, I know that's a whole, you know, hot mess, but the point is this is faith leading and driving him here. The point is his destiny is with the people of God, knowing that God's going to make good on his covenant promises. So the burial command is actually an expression of faith. And it's going to encourage his family, it's going to call his family after he's gone to trust that same promise. His burial there, that cave tomb in Machpelah, is actually a continual witness to the promise of God and the faith of the forefathers. And this burial procession out of Egypt to the promised land, taking Jacob's body, is actually like this early enactment of Exodus. Exodus the coming exodus, the path of the people of God. So it's like a pledge. It's like a foreshadowing, like a preview, like a prophetic promise acted out in miniature of what's to come when God fulfills his promises and brings his people to the promised land. And you know what? We're actually called to do the same thing. We're called to die in faith. Don't you want to die in faith? If we're going to die like Jacob here, we've got to have our hope set on the future fulfillment of the promises of God. So Matthew 5:5 5, 5 said, Blessed, says, "Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth." That's off in the future. New heavens and new Earth. We looked at this a couple weeks ago, but let's look at it again, Hebrews 11. 11 I'm sorry, 13 to 16, these all died in faith. Speaking of Jacob and, and Isaac and Abraham, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So that cave in Machpelah was like the earnest money on the fulfillment to come, like a pledge of the property that the people of God would inherit. So for us, our hope, is not only to be with God in some kind of spiritual, ethereal, you know, um, floating around disembodied state for eternity. No. I mean, certainly to be absent from the body, body goes in the ground, spirit goes to be with God in heaven, that's better than life in the flesh in this fallen world. That's why Paul says, you know, to die is gain, better to depart and be with Christ. But that's not what we ultimately long for. We long to be clothed with immortality in a new heavens, a new earth, the perfect home of righteousness, the city with foundations, our eternal homeland. So just think of Barry. So he is no longer suffering in that broken down, weakened body. But he's still waiting for his body. Because that doesn't come until the last saint crosses the finish line and Jesus comes back and then everything is made new. We all get our renewed, resurrected bodies and we live together. And yes, I'm going to race Barry and I think he's going to beat me. So do you see how Barry set his hope? He died in faith, waiting for the fulfillment of that promise, but he knew that promise is coming. He knows it's coming. And we follow in his footsteps as he followed in the footsteps of the faithful saints who finished well before him. So, again, Genesis, the end of Genesis is calling us to die in faith. All right, so if we step back here and look, we're going to see some bookends in this chapter um, First off, there's some bookends in in chapter 49. You see what he says? He's going to tell you what will happen in the latter days, is what he says to his sons. What is to come? I'm going to talk to you about that. And then that's talked about as blessing each of his sons with blessings suitable in verse 28. Okay, so that's interesting. The point is, the blessing is coming in the days to come, okay? Why do I bring that up? Well, zoom out a little further and look at some other bookends. The book of Genesis begins in 128. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, okay? So he blesses Adam and Eve and he wants his glory and this perfect paradisical like world to spread throughout the whole earth, filling it with his glory, And then chapter 49, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said, as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him about what was to come in the latter days. So the sin of Adam and Eve and their descendants ruined the blessing, but God is in the process of restoring that blessing to his people, and he's going to do it through Abraham and his descendants. That's what Genesis 12, 1 to 3 is all about. So that covenantal blessing is promised It's continuing through Jacob, onto his sons, and ultimately through his sons, specifically Judah, to the nations. So Genesis begins with God's blessing. It ends with Jacob blessing his sons. God directly blessed Abraham and Isaac. Now he's mediating his blessing through Jacob. Later in Israel's history, he's going to mediate his blessing through prophets, priests, and kings. And then he's going to mediate that blessing most fully and finally through the prophet, priest, and king, the Lord Jesus, so that all of the nations will be blessed. So this is comment here by John Salehammer helps us see where all this is heading. The promise that when the one comes to whom the kingship truly belongs, there will once again be the peace and prosperity that God intended all to have in the Garden of Eden. He blessed everything, we ruined it, and he's going to bring it through the son of Judah, this great, 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 who knows how many great grandsons of Judah because the one with the scepter, the one through whom the blessing will come to the nations is going to come from the tribe of Judah. Fifth point, lion from the tribe of Judah. We'll have to do this quickly. Um, So do you see there in Genesis 49 verse 10, so after Judah is spoken of as this lion, strength and rule, the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Of course, this is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. You know, Psalm 2, that Messianic Psalm, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Or that vision in Daniel 7, when Daniel sees in the night visions this one like a son of man, And all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Or in Revelation 5 that Tyler read earlier, we read about the triumph of the Lion of Judah. Revelation 5, 5, one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And they sang a new song, verse 9, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. The lion is also the lamb. And by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So tribute is going to come to Jesus. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And what is his rule described like in chapter 49? Binding his fold of the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He's washed his garments in wine and his vesture in blood of grapes. Imagine a scenario where the abundance and prosperity is so great that you could just tie up your donkey to the best the best vines. Because like, what's the donkey going to do with those grapes? These are like super valuable, you know, crazy, vintage, you know, the, this wine would, would just command this incredible price. It doesn't matter. The donkeys can eat those grapes because there's so much. It's so super abundant. You can just tie your donkey up to that. It doesn't matter. And wine is as common as wash water. Like that's how super abundant this Rule and reign of this king is. So, obviously, that speaks to the beautiful, wonderful, benevolent, powerful reign of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And one day, every knee will bow. We either bow now and we will participate in that abundance, peace, and prosperity, or if we refuse him, we will face his wrath and his robe. When he returns, Revelation 19, is red, And it's not from the blood of grapes. It's from the blood of the judgment that he meets out on those who rebel against his rule. So, this chapter, this little story, is such a clear part of the big story. So let me just close with the big picture story Bible and... A quick little quote here, a few pages. It's a great kid's book, by the way. Um, Highly recommend it. So, God's people in God's place, under God's rule and blessing, is what this life is all about. That's where it's all headed. That's where it started. That's where it's all going to end. And you can see how Genesis 59 fits right in and sends these clear arcs out to the cross and all the way to the new heavens and the new earth. So, Adam and Eve in the garden, God's people, Adam and Eve, lived in God's place, the Garden of Eden, and they ruled God's world by obeying God's good word. Sadly, we all know it went wrong. And then the Lion of the tribe of Judah showed up, and here is the one who will rescue... Oop, I'm sorry, I'm reading the wrong one. Will God ever rescue his people from sin? Will we ever have our place with him? Will God ever bring again his blessings on all peoples of the earth? That's the big question. Jesus comes, and here is the one who will rescue God's people. Here is the one who has become God's place. He's the living temple. Here is the one who even rules over death and can bring God's blessing to all the peoples of the earth. And then the end of the story, which is really the beginning. God's forever people will one day live in God's forever place under God's forever rule. Even so, come Lord Jesus. All right? So, we eat looking back at God's faithfulness in the past, his redemption of his people, his promises that he's made. And fulfilled, and we eat in anticipation of the day when all of those promises will be fulfilled at the wedding feast of the Lamb. So, if the men who are going to serve can come forward, we look back giving thanks to God for His great redemptive grace, and we look forward in hope because all of his promises are yes and amen, and we will feast at the wedding feast of the Lamb. So we look back in faith, we give thanks, we look forward in faith, and we're strengthened to keep going by faith in the present, by the grace of God that's ours in Christ, um, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. So um, this table is open To any and all who are trusting Jesus as their Savior, if you have trusted Christ and you've followed him in baptism, that's the initial rite as a Christian. You go public with your faith. And then this is the ongoing rite, ongoing means of grace where we feed on all that Jesus has done for us and we're strengthened and reminded and encouraged. So you're welcome to participate if you're trusting in Jesus as your Savior. Just receive the the elements, the bread and the cup, and hold them until everyone's served, and then we'll all participate together. Father, thank you for the fact that you are the author of this big story, that you are working it all out, and we can trust you. This world is not spinning out of control. Our lives are not spinning out of control And your faithfulness in the past in the lives of our forefathers and foremothers is testimony to the fact that you can, you will continue to fulfill your promises and keep us as we walk this pilgrim road all the way home, as we long for the day when everything will be made new and we will come home to the new heavens and the new earth, the home of righteousness. And we thank you that this stability, this hope, these promises are ours in Christ, and we celebrate that now. We thank you for that now, and we pray that you would feed us on that grace now as you draw near and remind us of all that is ours in Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen.